Ushimatsu repented. What had possessed him to go in for so much study? Why had he hearkened after notions of freedom and justice? If he had never known that he too was a man like other men, contempt and insult might have been easier to bear. Why had he been born so nearly human, when a life among the beasts of the moor and the mountain would have been freer of pain? Memories grim and gay began to float to the surface of his mind. Memories of events in Iyama since his appointments to the school, of life at college, of his home in the mountains. Memories and scenes and incidents that for years had lain buried returned with freshness of yesterday. A wave of self-pity engulfed him for a moment, till the jumble of memories scattered like smoke in a gust of wind and left him confronting the only alternatives the future could hold. Dismal and lifelong humiliation or death. Surely he must choose the second. Welcome everyone to the Literal Fiction Book Club where we read books so you don't have to. My name is Sam Johnson and joining me today is Alex. Hello. Chloe. Hello boys. Tom. Hello. And Troy. Good evening everyone. How are we doing today? How are things going? Alex is uh, joining us from a remote location. Um, there's no... There's he's no in a fucking Ted Kaczynski um, recon... Mm-hmm. Uh, he's in a... He's in a... Um, like a mock... What's the word I'm looking for? I'm in hiding. I don't know. I don't yeah. know what you're trying. He's to say. gone to I, ground. I'm, yeah. I'm on the run. You're you like know. in a Ted Kaczynski reenactment shack. He he's in. He's That's in what the, the fuck uh, you're in. Uh, what's her name? What's the Epstein girl's name? Elaine Maxwell. Which one? Elaine Maxwell. He's in her papers. So uh, he's trying to to hide. No, bit. no. I tried to do a, a, a tactical apprehension of her at the courthouse <laughs> down the street, and uh, it all went wrong. So I'm, I'm, I gotta hide. <laughs> Dude, imagine how crazy that would have been if he just like randomly bumped into her in a corner store, and it was like, draw your concealed weapon, just casually. Citizens arrest. I've been. What would she be buying so at that corner store? Lollipops? Lolly- I, I have no idea. Wine also, it gross. wasn't in Bedford; it was in Bradford. Keep up the good work, ABC News. <laughs> Yeah, they fucked that up big time. Dude, the estate is crazy. I was looking at the pictures of it. Yeah, she bought it all in cash. It's wild stuff. Bet she did. Do you guys remember, like, you know, two years ago when it was like uh, the whole Comet Pizza thing was going on and everybody was like, no, our our elites couldn't rape any children. (laughs) I don't remember that. Dude, the the Uh emails are still sus to this day. You You don't remember remember Pizzagate, You really can't. I do not remember Pizzagate. Someone tell him. Okay, so Pizzagate was um, when the uh, Hillary Clinton emails leaked, or the John Podesta emails leaked, um, which threw a bad light on Hillary Clinton. People were going through some of the emails, and they sounded- Hillary Clinton was the wife of Bill Clinton, and I think she, (laughs) what was she, like a senator from New York, too? And then she ran for president in the year of our Lord, 2016. Yeah, okay. I know all of this. All right, and I know, I know, I know. and I know about the emails. Yeah. I don't know about yeah. Comet Pizza. That's so, the one little detail missing from. So this. should we go over? Bill Clinton was a a famous baby rapist who was also <laughs> president of the United States during the nineties. Was he? Yeah. Yeah. Tell me more. Um, and Chelsea Clinton is is an actual lizard. Oh. Elaine Maxwell is <laughs> I heard at she's their wedding. Isn't she she was hot? under deposition at that time. And they actually found a photo of her at Chelsea Clinton's wedding, like in the background. It was like, I thought you said you couldn't uh, come to New York for this deposition because of, I think she said she was sick or something. It's like funny because you're standing right here with all the Clintons. (laughs) Jesus Christ. She had a fucking aisle seat too. Right. 
But to answer your question, Tom. Comet pizza. The, so a lot of the emails that came out when people were looking over them, they sounded kind of weird. And I mean, I read the emails. They do sound fucking weird. It's like, you know, two weeks from now, I'm going to drop off some pizza sauce, like kind of, you know, it's like so obvious this is a euphemism for something. And so people ran with this and, you know, it was a, a child sex ring. Well, turns out it's probably a child sex ring. So, but normally the response to that whole, like the people being interested in that was like a, and don't get me wrong, crazies are involved in the whole conspiracy theory, but like, um, was just a complete dismissal of no, 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 no. You like, it's like every group of fucking insulated elites in the world have been debauched, sex crazed individuals. Why would ours be different? Well, right. Okay. So, so far I know all about all this. I just didn't know it was referred to as Comet Pizza. So that no, was one of the... Uh, go ahead, Alex, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so there's a, a, a pizza restaurant in Washington, D.C. that's owned by someone who's kind of associated with uh, the Democratic Party. And uh, it was like a music, a punk venue, too. Like it, And th- they had a lot of events together, and somehow the, the theory was created that in the basement of this p- specific pizza restaurant was where they were keeping the the children and some dude went oh. in there with, and was like you know we have to free the kids which the it's honestly like i don't think they were kept in a basement these people love boats you know what no, i mean i mean yeah like they this were is a in traffic to the island you can yeah no it's this yeah this is a boat activity it's not a pizza parlor yeah, no, who would be stupid enough to do it in a public place they did it on mansions where there were guards and gates and they were like a mile away so you could not see inside the building they wouldn't be doing it in downtown dc yeah downtown dc and like a local pizza parlor like that's just asking for shit to get found when you have billions of dollars i'm sure that you figure it out in a more discreet way there were uh, a lot of small cheese pizzas being ordered though i believe that that is not explained yet that for real uh, the what, way they spoke what race, to each other. What race corresponds to what topping is what I want to know. Right. I think it Not was like, like gender or... Oh. So cheese is dudes? I have no what idea. Are, what are women? Chicken parms? That makes sense. All right. So the news I wanted to share earlier yeah, this ahead. week. Oh, right. In New York, normally sex trafficking really? is processed by the Violent and Organized Crime Bureau within the... It's called the Sovereign District because New York just does whatever the fuck it wants. But uh, Ghislaine is being prosecuted by the Public Corruption Bureau, which means they're after some big fish. Oh, That's fucking sick. Ooh. And also, like, William Barr's father taught at the school that Jeffrey Epstein taught at in the late 70s, Like of the bar 80s. exam? No, as no, a the William General. Barr, the attorney general who's scum. <laughs> oh. But, uh, <laughs> the the he, uh, bar exam he tried to replace. He tried to force out the current DA for the Southern District of New York, but he didn't get his pick as replacement. The guy that got forced out was able to put his deputy in. And uh, she's only the acting attorney, so it's like it's very much still a live case of whether somebody's going to catch and kill this. Interesting. So, but you're saying is that it seems like the state is interested in taking down some big fish with. Uh, oh yeah. Yeah. And it can. Uh, it doesn't have to be people that are publicly or still publicly in office. It can be like former officials. So like people in Maine, people in New Mexico, especially like a former governor of New Mexico is very high on the list. Chris Dodd, right? Yeah. Yeah. I met his. I met him once. My mom. I remember my mom met him when he was campaigning. He did he run for president or something? 
And my mom said he was a good man, but everyone knew that he had a zipper problem. And that like made a big impression on me as like a a 12 year old. Does that mean he just leaves his fly down all the time? It it means he was, he was always fucking around. He, He was, couldn't keep it in his pants. Yeah, no, yeah. I know that. I'm Brett, are there any New Hampshire? Out. Are there any notable people of New Hampshire relevance um, that are Im- possibly implicated in the Epstein crisis? But what if I, I just just as like a theoretical out there? What if Andrew Valinsky was on the list? Well, <laughs> 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 or or Mindy Mesmer? You know, oh, Mindy. <laughs> that would be. That'd be some uh, some sweet news. Fa- but, uh, yeah. Fam, you know, I mean, I know we're talking on the pod here, and we're getting some fucking deep cuts of New Hampshire politics. Right now. <laughs> but those are um, those are some pretty like uh, liberal lefty uh, t- um, political candidates in our state. And uh, Valinsky's a grown man wearing like round glasses from Zenny Optical. Right. That's all well, I gotta is, say. Isn't he a white nationalist? Yeah, because the NAACP is trying to. Cancel what did he do? <laughs> do to the what did he do to the NAACP he he voted against a black republican he doesn't like eddie <laughs> edwards that's yeah. literally it he just yeah. doesn't well, like eddie edwards he's wrong not because eddie edwards is black but because eddie edwards lifts it's true so he's the only choice for new hampshire next question Who, wait eddie edwards is he jacked oh yeah yeah he's yeah. a former cop he was i watched one of his his um uh campaign videos and it had him him benching like uh you know close to three plates so oh hell yeah dude all right, I'll vote for him too. Wait, Eddie. <laughs> yeah, he sounds cool. Okay, I'm in. We have strong standards for our candidates here in well, New Hampshire. It's all a fucking joke. Oh yeah, for sure. All right, so we did our our Epstein intro. Um, does anybody have anything non-Epstein related they would like to to you know throw out there? You know, I'm actually starting to enjoy listening to the pod now that I'm going back to the gym. I like. I just needed a fo- a place where I could listen to it, mm. where I would have my headphones in for an hour, and now I have that place again. I love Hell the yeah. pod. I listen to the pod. I just turn it off once I'm off the pod. <laughs> if I'm gonna be a hundred percent. Damn it! Sorry. Oh man, that's hilarious. I was thinking, guys, uh, we should for our wrap up episode get really, really drunk off. Um, sake or something oh hell Hell yeah yeah. i was thinking about Uh, that i was like these people are just pounding like these little glasses of sake but everybody's getting drunk it's like a good uh it's like 17 18 percent i've only tried it one time and i thought it tasted fine but i know there's like a million kinds that'd that'd be yeah that'd be awesome yeah sake is fine if we ever do anything that has to do with portugal i have some portuguese absinthe that we can drink Mm, all right deal we're doing portugal next time baby yeah my favorite wine is from portugal i'll just drink that and bring that why do you have that um i worked with a guy who was portuguese and he went to portugal for three weeks i he worked for me when he came back he brought me a gift and it was a cigar and green absinthe okay yeah let's do it i'll let you take the first shot so there's a lot of like ideas on different types of absinthe and stuff. I've heard absinthe that like makes you hallucinate and things like that. Mm-hmm. You basically have uh, to drink enough to kill yourself though for that to be true. Oh, okay. Well, so then we should be okay. Uh, okay. It's just so minor. If you it's guys if you guys ever do like a what would it be like a South American unit or something, you guys can all do ayahuasca and podcast. Just puke into the Dude. fucking microphone. We're all just puking and shitting like <laughs> That's just like, that should be a new bit. We should just try different drugs on the pod. Let's do some peyote on the pod, you know. Peyote. That'd be cool. Let's do cocaine on the pod. (laughs) I'm on meth currently. Yeah. Yeah. Medicated. Um, But yeah, so um, 
Let's get drunk off sake. Let's get drunk off sake. Um, we are. We did talk about in the chat about the uh, British Adventure unit that we want to do, um, which I think is it's a recurring theme, which makes me think it's something that we really do need to do. Um, How did the phrase British Adventure come up? I don't even remember. It's I somewhere do. in the pot. Go ahead. Spin uh, the yarn, bro. We were we were just talking about how people don't have adventures like the British used to anymore. And we were just talking about, you know, going to India or whatever. Going. <laughs> but we could uh, do, you know, we could do Burmese days. We could do this, the um, Seven Pillars of Wisdom. The um, And that fucking guy you found on Facebook, what was his name? Mad Horse? Dog James yeah. or something. I don't know, but yeah. that was the coolest Wikipedia page I've ever read in my entire life. Tell us. Um, tell us what happens. It was about this... Um, british accountant who you know joined and fought in world war ii was an accountant got bored and in like 1960 moved to south africa and became a mercenary and leaded like a mercenary squad that did like engaged in like multiple uh counter revolutions in in africa and in rhodesia and then for his like last hurrah he assembled a bunch of south africans and rhodesians and tried to overthrow the government of like some tiny the seychelles uh, yes thank you uh, uh <clears throat> troy but uh yeah and then but he, one of his dudes started shooting too quick in the airport and it all went to hell and he had to like hijack a plane to fly back to south africa and then he went to jail for like two years and then just retired rich off his book royalties yeah and he has like seven books about the same story it looks like <laughs> yeah the dude seems just like what the, he lived possibly the coolest life of all time and he died in 2020 he died at 100 years old from coronavirus yeah. Probably. Coronavirus. Coronavirus. But yeah, like I mean, he lived like the coolest life you can possibly live. So we're all going to become reactionary mercenaries in fucking Africa. Is that where we're, where this is headed? I think. But if we could do that, except not be that, you know. What do you mean? The, if we can do like, that without, you know, doing that. What do you mean being like revolutionary mercenaries as opposed to yeah. counter revolutionary mercenaries? I'm down. I'm down. I basically be, to be like Hemingway, except without all the back injuries. Ah. Uh. You just want to smoke cigarettes in different places because that's what being Hemingway is. It's just getting wasted. It's getting wasted, smoking cigarettes and like, you know. Cucking your friends. Yeah. But but also like, you know. No, and that's what I would do. Searching for subs in Cuba and like going to Spain during the war. Submarine sandwiches. I think didn't he pick up a gun during World War II when he was a journalist and people got mad at him? I don't remember that. Did, I think I heard some story about that. I don't know if it's a legend or not. Could be. But yeah, he definitely was, you know, he he was um like uh in the medical unit, right? In the Spanish Civil War, right? That was part of this thing. I I think so. Isn't that what the whole um farewell to arms like isn't that? No. No, that's right? World War 1. Oh, that's he, World War 1. He right, was in World yeah. War 1. Right. Maybe that's what I'm thinking about. I think Spanish Civil War he was just a journalist. Maybe I'm wrong. Or well fought. God bless Orwell. He's being um, roasted online these days. That happens at once every like three months. Yeah, I don't give a shit what a Democrat has to say about George Orwell. Wait, why did George Orwell post something bad? Well, because so... (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) I wanted someone to laugh. Um, No, the basic... Listeners, call in and tell me I'm funny. The endless controversy is about like, um, first of all, he wasn't exactly um, pro-homosexual, but that (laughs) that wasn't... uh, maybe the prime thrust of his thought. But the other thing was, is that he, um, when the British left was extremely Stalinist, um, you know, and the whole popular front was going on and the, the West was allied with the Soviet Union, 
um, he still remained critical of the Soviet Union and he kept a list of Stalinists that on his death, I believe, was released to the government and was part of the like purging after World War Two of um, of British Stalinist officials. But, you know, I mean, I don't know. Make your bed fucking sleep in it. Like, what do you think? They're not going to. F- they, they didn't need Orwell to figure that one the fuck out. Like, <laughs> no. And I mean, he got completely fucked at the end of the Civil War by the Stalinists and he had a. A, a uh, paranoid. I would say he had a very after. good reason yeah. to turn against socialism. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. he didn't turn he against socialism. He, right. He, he, was yeah, exactly. social, he was just anti Stalinist. I mean, and the thing is with him is like towards the end of his life, like, his wife died. He was very depressed. Like, just reading his books towards the end, you can tell there's a shift in, in who he is, you know? Right, right, right. Wait, is he a good author who was also a good husband? Because those are like not often the case. I don't think he was a good husband. Oh. Oh. I think he liked his wife. Oh yeah, but that's that a plus. No, like that's a big a plus husband. though, historically. And on that note, we're going to transition to our book. All right. This week we read The Broken Commandment by Shimazaki Tosin, and which was translated by Kenneth Strong. Um, it is the story of one Ushimatsu Sagawa, a provincial teacher who carries with him a terrible secret. He is an Eta, a culturally discriminated minority in Japan. Ushimatsu's father moved away from the Eta community into the mountains to allow his son to pursue the future that he never had as a common member of Japanese society. However, Ushimatsu is fascinated with the Eta activist and writer Rintaro Inoko, a fearless advocate for the equality of Eta in Japan. This is the central conflict of this novel. To whom does he tell his secret heritage and for what purpose? Does he live a comfortable lie or risk losing everything for the truth of his origins? Does he break his father's commandment? As the title says, yes, indeed he does. Shimazaki Tosin is a well-regarded Japanese writer, considered one of the founders of the Meiji Restoration literary movement. The Broken Commandment was completed after Tosin quit his job and sent him and his family to poverty. He lost all three of his daughters to various ailments, and according to the translator's introductions, quote, the newspapers were advertising the novel as the book that had cost its author the lives of his children. So um, since we were originally going to read the first half of this book for, you know, each section, and I didn't really want to recapitulate the whole plot, um, you know, I know we're reading the book so they don't have to, but the main thrust of the novel is this guy's a teacher. Um, he's out in a provincial town. I think it's called I- Iliyama. Um and he uh, is hiding the secret about being Eta, and um, eventually his uh, father dies, and so he has to go out into the country to like go to that funeral. And um, while he's on his way there, he um, he sees kind of his idol, uh, this guy um, Rintaru Inoko, and um, develops a relationship with him. And it's through that um, it's through that relationship that uh, he eventually discovers sort of his need to uh, reconcile um, his uh, external way of being to the way he understands himself um, as being Etta. And um, the the book ends with, with him heading off to Texas, actually, um, which I thought was interesting. Uh, so I just wanted to open up the conversation with, um, d- first of all, just like general impressions of this book, because... Um, they're like this is probably one of the best novels I've ever read, um, and I wanted to get 
all of your opinions on just like the general quality of the book first. So, yeah, Sam, I definitely agree with you. This is also probably one of the best books I've ever read in my entire life. Um, I was really struck by um, just like the very, very simple style that he wrote in, but also his ability to kind of like paint the imagery in the setting like so quickly and so vividly. Like I felt like throughout the book, like I could like smell the fall air. Like I don't know what it was about it, but it like transported me there very, very quickly um, and did so in a way that like not many other authors I've ever seen can do it. I'm really surprised that this is not a more well-known book, if I'm going to be honest. Um, I kind of am of another opinion that I like the romanticism of it, which I think is what you're talking about, Alex, is being able to smell the fall air and then he does do an excellent description always with the weather the setting um food basically all sensory experiences you can get he describes very well um i thought the plot moved along well i just wish there was more to what the protagonist was going through like they i was struck when reading the introduction they mentioned that the author mentions a lot about his anxiety of being discovered as an Etta, but there's not a whole lot of like seeing what the real discrimination looked like. And at the very beginning when the other person comes to the inn and then gets thrown out, that's like just brutal how the discrimination is. And people talk disparagingly of them, but you don't really get to see it. So it's almost like I could very much see the author as the main character or he was trying to imagine himself as it. And then also it almost seemed that the arguments of what being an Etta were, were the authors kind of just being against the way that the culture currently was, which is really brave for him at that time to speak up for like the untouchable class. Um, but I actually thought the best part of the plots were actually about um, the fallen teacher I forget his name, but he and his family. Kinoshin? Yeah, Kinoshin. Kinoshin, who is the drunk, and then his awful, awful second wife, and then all of their kids who are very integrated with the protagonist. I thought their story was actually the part that interested me the most. Um, I like the book a lot. I, I just don't think it's one of the best that I've ever read. Um, I mean, yeah, I agree with a lot of what you're saying, Troy. Um now that you bring it up, but I'll be honest, I didn't really think about that when I was reading the book. I felt like it was a really well-balanced book. He wasn't super wordy. He didn't really go crazy in depth developing the setting, but that's what's amazing about it is how detailed and how well you could imagine it without him having to like really harp on certain things. Um, and I thought the plot moved along great and, and not in a way that there was always these major events happening, but you were always engaged in where it was going. You know, each little thing that happened where, um, you know, the scene when he first picks up the book, when he doesn't have any money left in his paycheck and he's like, not sure he was going to eat the next day, but he still buys, um, Inoko's book. Is that how you pronounce it? Uh, yeah. Um, confessions right yeah and uh, he still buys the book and he reads through it and there's like that little uh point of tension where his friend and the other teacher are looking back at him and he knows that like their eyes are on him and that he kind of gave himself away and then it like quickly transitions a little bit into some more character development but then there's the other scene where um he's actually 
on the train and runs into Anoko and how that all progressed. And I just felt like there wasn't like all these major catastrophic events happening, but the plot really moved along well and it really kept you involved in what was going on and wanting to know like what happens next, what happens next, all with setting that like um, the setting was was really good as well. But it didn't, it wasn't like super crazy in-depth and wordy to do it, which is what was most impressive about it to me, is I didn't feel like I was having to like push myself through to like find myself in this world and in this character's shoes or like, okay, let's just see what happens next, like nonchalantly. It was very um, interesting and the plot moved well and the setting was great, but it was super easy to read. It was, it just flowed naturally to me and I liked it a lot. Yeah, I mean, I think that the, you know, it's interesting to me that, um, like, so the basic impression I got and the reason why I like the book so much is that, um, you know, we read a lot, like, in modern fiction, there's a lot of, like, internal psychology, right? It's about, like, interiority. It's about what's, you know, stream of consciousness, what's going on in people's minds. And, you know, like with Satri, for instance, that's definitely a theme of that or Journey to the End of the Night. And... Um, I thought that Tosin did a really good job of accessing the, his like main character's inner psychology without um, coming off as like cringy, right? So like even when it's pulled off really well, right? I still get like that internal like, Ugh, you know, like it's just it, it's a little bit too self-important. It's a little bit too um, assuming, and I think with Tosin and uh, Ushimatsu that he is able to give us a really good sense of who Ushimatsu is as a person by the way people interact with him and by um, his own thoughts without um, without coming off as like um, sentimental or showy um, because there's a there is a sense of minimalism in his writing and there also is a sense of um, modesty right when we talked about Charles Dickens that's one of the reasons I like him so much is that he's very modest about what he knows about his characters minds um, he understands individuals as unaccessible to a degree and i think tosin is able to kind of um, believably cross that line um whereas i feel um other authors who want to get into people's heads they um they are projecting their own inner psychological angst or psychological imaginations onto these characters and that can come off as um you know a little bit much sometimes and Sam, I think like the, the good po- a point, I mean, I agree with everything you just said, but a, a, a point that's interesting that you made is that you learn about Ushimatsu f- through how characters interact with him. And like, it, it's actually, I think, very important to his character development is seeing how his friends talk about him and his like kind of nervous state and his like pallor and, you know, how like on edge he is because you get that more through how characters interact with him than through anything from his own perspective um and the way he writes that it just it f- feels you just n- very naturally pick up on this if you're paying attention i agree with that and uh, it's so it? impressive i don't it's just like th- this book like just kind of like washes over you i don't know well and he just blended it well where he wasn't relying on internal monologues to get an idea or a point across or to move the story it like you said it just happened naturally with his interactions in his environment which is impressive. I really liked the other characters, like you were mentioning, Alex, when his friends are talking about him, especially um, his best friend, 
Jinosuke. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jinosuke is, I think, my favorite character in the book just because he's kind of the voice of reason, but he's also, I don't know, he's very humble, but also just like good natured. Um, I think the only thing in the book that I kind of got tired of was I know that there was the internal struggle of the anxiety of, oh my God, what's going to happen to my life if it comes out that I'm an Etta. And I just feel that, I know it was important to get that across, but around page like 170 or so, I was like, okay, I, I get it. I get that this is what he's thinking. We've seen him be pale and withdrawn and brooding. And it's like, I just, I did feel like there were more scenes than there needed to be of that specifically. And then around around the halfway mark of the book, he has an interaction with the politician, Taki Yanagi. And I really thought that was going to turn because Taki Yanagi marries an Eta woman. And that's like one of the big plot points. And then he finds the protagonist, comes up and says, hey, you're not going to mention anything, right? Otherwise, I'm going to expose you. And I was like, ooh, okay, this is really going to change his internal psychology. But then, like, in the next scene, it's just the same thing. He just denies it, and he's like, oh, my God, what happens if people find out I'm an Etta? And I was like, oh, all right. I thought there was going to be some more progression for him personally. Right. So I, I think that, like, and maybe this is, like, a cultural mistranslation, but, like, you know, his his boundness to his father's commandment, right? That is the stressor point of this, right? It's like him and his lineage and him uh, actually, you know, shifting away from what his father told him to be to what he is going to be. And all of the other events are going to, you know, going to rotate around that central fact. Um, Hmm. And I think actually, you know, and um, yeah, I I think you make a good argument, Troy, uh, but my my general opinion about like the politician interaction and why it was so powerful is because it was really like a lot was at stake, mm-hmm. right? If he stood up for himself at that point, right? There's a, um, there's a sense of maybe political explosion from, um, the candidate that Inoko is, uh, supporting, um, you know, obviously, uh, potentially a bombastic consequence for his job and his livelihood. At that point, he hadn't made the connection with the, um, the Etta who got kicked out of the, um, place he was originally staying at Oneki, I think was the guy's name. So, um, he would have been completely exposed. And I almost feel like with, um, with Ushimatsu's character that like, that would have come to me out of left field, right? Like he is, um, a deeply, uh, reverent and kind of like he, he's imaginative, but he still has like a conservative personality. Um, he still has a sense of, of, you know, maybe like a modern man, a modern Japanese man, but still a Japanese man. Um, and, you know, what we got from the Beasley, which is like a modern Japanese man, is somebody who prioritizes the nation, prioritizes the family, but understands that in the prioritization of that, they, you know, they must become, you know, advanced in a way. I think that that really did hit home well when his father is gored by the bull and then his father's literal dying wish is don't break my commandment, like never tell anyone. And then his uncle reinforces that. And I agree that he wouldn't have changed outwardly. I guess that was just the scene with the politician. I was disappointed in because I was expecting there to be a shift in his internal my- monologue somehow. Um, mm. But it just kind of stayed the same. Like he doesn't have a revelation or a change until the very, very end. Um, when 
well, I guess we're getting into spoilers now. When uh, <laughs> when his mentor is killed after after the rally, then he like completely has a reversal of what it means to be an Etta for him, and he embraces it. And I just thought there would have been like some stepping point in between the politician scene and when his mentor is killed. Um, but and it, it's a minor gripe. Like it's no, still I mean, a good I can, book. Yeah, and I can understand that completely. I didn't think about it at the time. I mean, I didn't really up on that what you're saying Troy but now that I'm looking back on it thinking about it that was a really good opportunity to add a little bit more depth to it and I couldn't agree that that probably was an opportunity left on the table I don't think it 100% detracted from the story by any means but it certainly could have added to it so I'm gonna push back a little bit because I think that what it's that that scene serves to do is to continue to build tension and like I think this this book has like like a quickening pace of tension i think like with ushimatsu internally and i think that he does that because the point is like it reinforces the idea that his secret is what's really oppressing him like the being an ita and the oppression of the itas is borne out to not actually be uh you know truly as horrible as he thought it would be obviously like his problems are caused by the fact that he's continually having to like hide this and deny it and lie to people even you know when it's obvious um and that is what is kind of like haunting him it's not that he really is an ita because in the end you know spoilers again like as we see like you know he's embraced by his entire community pretty much aside from a, a couple pieces of shit yeah who were gonna reject him either way you know they were going after jino Suke, right um even though you know there was no rumors about him but because he was a non-traditional teacher and i think you know, I think the end of the book really reaffirms Alex's point, which is that, you know, Jinosuke, um, you know, he, he, you know, still friends with him. It's not like Jinosuke is like disgusted with him. All of his students come to send him off. I right? did love that ending. Um, I thought that was like really sweet. He gets the girl. You right. Know? I wasn't expect. I was not <laughs> expecting that. That was like the only that was probably the only part of the book that I thought was misplaced was because I, you know, Jinosuke, like, had this theory about the, you know, woman problems for him. And that was, like, vaguely hinted at. But it was a little bit, um, I don't know, that was, like, a little bit, like, foo-foo-y to me because it, it, that, there was no real buildup for that, like, remote romantic interest. He was clearly thinking about her, but it was, like, very, uh, there's a lot of undertones there. Um, and I think if I read it again, I might might have have a different impression of it, but... I was, I guess, much more focused on the, the central point. I, I feel like it could have been built up. I guess the part, the whole thing why my gripes so far have been about the third act, basically. Like, in the third act, after the politician Takianagi leaves, it does continue to build the tension really well because we find out as the reader that he tells the principal and he just, like, spills the secret to everybody around town. But... The protagonist doesn't know yet, but we know. So that's great at building the tension. And then also I feel like in the fourth act, it kind of redeems itself because he starts to interact more with Kyoshin's family and it like really deepens. And then I was like, oh, okay, I can see why he really loves Oshio. But yeah, I was not expecting it to be like zero to a hundred. Okay, now she's going to marry him and leave. I was like, oh, wow. Okay. Right. Go to fucking Texas. Right. <laughs> Dude, if only it was that easy. You smile at a chick twice, and then you just move to Texas. <laughs> right. Yeah, you know that's the dream. 
It was all for the happy ending, you know? Yeah, you're goddamn right. I do like, yeah. uh, so part of romanticism is just the slice of life aspect to it. Like a lot of my favorite scenes were just, he's describing stuff that obviously the author saw. So like there's a Buddhist sermon, which is really interesting when he's describing the cow herds, when he goes up and he views his father after dying, when he views the, um, the other Ito when they're actually making and butchering the bull and then taking it apart. And he's like viewing what in the Meiji era they were working in a wooden factory, like in a butcher shop, cutting it apart. And I was like, these scenes are just so cool because I can actually imagine and see it happening. Um, and I just love the like little slice of life aspect of those. Those are some of my favorite scenes. Yeah. And I think he, I think he pulls it off really well because they're like, that bull scene especially that like really jumped out at me as um like a great example of taking something that was pretty normal for him at least i mean not normal for us but normal for him and making it kind of this very dramatic episode right um not only because the bull killed his father and you know is it there's sort of a sacrifice in that sense but even just like the physical act of killing and and you know turning a, a living creature into a bunch of pounds of flesh right to be um to be sold or eaten or whatever um i thought he i thought tosin really pulled that off as far as um making that just a compelling scene to to experience i think my favorite scene though is when um ushimatsu and inoko are walking around and then they're just like enjoying the view of the mountain range together i think this is my single favorite scene fuck yeah dude i like that um so i wanted to ask you guys um like, what does this novel say about fatherhood? Because that, I feel like, um, you know, obviously the central point of this is Ushimatsu and his relationship to his father. Um, but we have a couple different fathers in this uh, this book. Um, we have U- Ushimatsu's father and then we have um, uh, Kinoshin. Um, and they both kind of fail in their own way. Um, Ushimatsu's father sort of by disciplining um, his son into neurosis and Kinoshin by drinking away his family's money. Uh, what, you know, what would Tosin say to the question of like, how do you raise a child? Like, how do you be a good dad? Um, I'm just going to go out on a limb here in terms of when the book was being written. Author didn't do a great job. (laughs) So he gave up his job to write this book full time. All of his kids became malnourished and died. I mean, you know, they didn't, they weren't, they weren't traumatized. They were not. They didn't have the opportunity to be. <laughs> yeah. That's, Look on so the bright side. Good advice to the listeners. If you're afraid of being traumatized, you should just die. Right. <laughs> Give that a try. Some solid advice. It's very stoic Japanese advice. Who needs a therapist when you have Alex, you know? When you can just die. <laughs> okay, cool. Um, I mean, to your point, Sam, the two main um, father characters in the book were obviously flawed. Not to the point of the author with what we're talking about right now, you know, malnourished children passing away. Um, but they were flawed in a relatable way. I mean, it, you're, you're talking about a father that's petrified about his son's future and, you know, what he's going to become and how he's going to be accepted into society and what kind of life he'll be able to lead and thinking, you know, generations in the future. Like if he actually pulls this off and gets an education, he becomes a teacher. If he becomes successful, you know, his kids won't even have to worry about the things that he had to worry about theoretically right and then um kinoshin his 
aspect is, you know, a little bit more like beaten, battered, worn down by the world, you know, um, struggling to cope with multiple things. He's got a terrible second wife who <laughs> I don't think any of us like, I would imagine. She's completely awful. Evil stepmother. I mean, he's a good-natured drunk, but he's still, you know, he's still like a... He's still a, a bum. Well, know? but the thing is, and, and that's what I'm getting to, is I'm not saying that he did anything right or that, you know, he's someone to be admired or to, like, look up to as a role model, but he's a relatable character. And I think that's kind of in the light that he was written, is everybody knows somebody who is a happy drunk who doesn't handle any of their responsibilities well, but is, like, a decent enough guy and, like, a good enough character, yeah, yeah, you know? Yeah. And so I think that's more where that was coming from. Um, but I think they were both meant to be flawed in that way, and I think that that added a lot to the story, and I think it was intentional. Yeah, I mean, I guess my point is not so much that it's not intentional, but that we have... Um, it, I guess I find it pretty telling that uh, Junosuke is not a dad, that we don't have an example of... We don't have a, a counterexample to what a, you know, what the right father is, right? Like, is the right father the one that um, tells Ushimatsu to be proud, to tell him to be like Inoku, right? Or Inoko? Um, go ahead, Alex. Sorry. I think Inoko is the good dad. He's not a dad, but I think he is. Right. The, I, he's I think the, that's the character he plays, yeah. He's the, he's the, the positive male role model. Who, he's a positive male force, you know, that's mentoring. Jinosuke is not necessarily a mentor, you know, he's a, they, they sleep in bed together at work and stuff, uh, you know, they're buddies. Just a, fucking bros, dude. A contemporary of sorts. It's yeah. cold outside, man. They almost die on the night watch together. Dude, I, I'm not judging. It sounds like they had a really cozy night. <laughs> hey, Alex, you want to, you want to sleep outside with me, buddy? <laughs> yeah, Come man. On. Dude, I think they're inside, <laughs> weren't they? They yeah, were, they well, were they were inside. Yeah, but he's, like, wandering around outside. So the night his dad dies, and he, like, yeah. hears a ghost. Right. Oh, that, <laughs> Everybody yeah. thinks he's crazy. Uh, yeah, right. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I think Inoko is basically dad. He's the positive male figure in the story, for sure. He's sensei. Yeah, he's sensei Inoku. I do love how all the kids see Ushimatsu as sensei. Like, you can feel the kid's joy of him being a good teacher, and I felt like that was portrayed or came across very strongly agreed i thought that that brought like a exceptional flavor to ushimatsu's character mm -hmm. because um you know he's just like brooding quiet like guy with a deep dark secret and you know nobody there's all kinds of characters in the book that don't know how to deal with that but adding the element of the children who respect him as a teacher to the point where they think he's the best teacher right to the point where the principal who's trying to get rid of him can't get rid of him because the students would be upset is um is just like a it it's like one of those very useful literary tools because you don't really have to go into too much detail about what that means for it to be impactful towards like fleshing out Ushimatsu. I was going to say the same exact thing and I thought it was so important the way that it was brought up early in the story like within the first 50 pages there's you know this talk going on where um, Ushimatsu and Jinosuke are like the favorite teachers of this school and how the principal's trying to like oust them and how he's having a hard time doing it and it, it, it just added this whole nother dynamic to the character not through his own actions and conversation but just through the setting and the exterior things that were going on that had that not been there 
you'd almost get lost in him like internally brooding and like you might think him to be like kind of bitter or confused but that aspect alone of him being this like favorite teacher and the students loved him and the principal didn't know how to get rid of him or what to do with him just made you like believe that this is a good guy like this is a good character he means well he does a good job like he's got his priorities straight and it, it didn't get lost in that internal struggle. It just gave a totally different dynamic to the character early. And it framed that throughout the story. He's also very tender with Shogo and with the Ita boy in the school. The one he plays tennis with? And then in the on the final day when he hugs him, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That speaks a lot, I think. That tennis scene was another really good scene, too. I really enjoyed that, yeah, well, where he's, like, the scene. only one who steps up and plays with him, and they get absolutely waxed. <laughs> but, like, <laughs> it was... But that kind of, like, made it even better. You know what I mean? Like, he just stepped up, and, like, he was he was the good guy, you know? And, and that's that's who his character was. And you really, like... You just wanted to see him do well. You wanted to see him succeed. You wanted to see him overcome this burden through the whole story. I thought that was one of two really good scenes where it's actually shows you what the discrimination against the Ita looks like. So at the beginning, when the other adult man gets thrown out of the hostel, and then this scene where the boys try to beat up the Ita boy to give up the racket, but he's able to fight them off, and then they all just like turn to social isolation. It's like, fine, well, nobody's going to match with you. And I just felt so bad for the kid. Yeah, for real. I mean, even just the whole, the whole uh, Ita thing right like when i read that in the introduction like that pretty much like sucked me into the whole book because i was like i didn't even know this fucking shit existed i know like i I read the introduction and then proceeded to read like three or four different articles about it because i was like this is a real thing like what is this i I educated myself on a pre-story i mean even the fucking you know we just read a book about the meiji restoration not that the not that the ito were like a political factor but it like literally the word is not mentioned so you know we have this culturally discriminated minority in japan which is like and by discriminated you know we don't mean like oh you know there's some prejudice about them we mean they're like they're, it's like the untouchables like they're not allowed to serve tea to regular japanese people they're you know they they can't approach like the residencies of ordinary japanese people um when there are uh social discontents they're the first ones to be targeted uh and i mean even the in the uh the translator said their um their situation isn't that much different and i think he wrote the translation in the like 60s so it isn't much that, that much different than african-americans so um, when I learned that that was a thing, I was like, holy fucking shit. Like, <laughs> why yeah. don't they know about this? I know. And there's, it mentions in the intro too, there's 400,000 of them. Like this wasn't a small group. I mean, out of the millions and millions of people in Japan, but 400,000 people, like that's a massive community to be an untouchable class. And it really is a weird mix of kind of the way the Jews were treated in Europe and then Africans Americans are treated in this country. Like I thought it was an odd mix of the two. Yeah, yeah. Where some of it is based on your birth, but then also some of it is like, oh, you're dirty because of the jobs you do. But then there's like jealousy because they become wealthy because these jobs are necessary. So it's like an odd mix of both racial stuff and like envy of their status. Yeah, or their economic status. Mm-hmm. It's great. Like, and there, it seems like there's like four or five different groups of extremely oppressed people in Japan. Because, like, I was re- I had, I ordered that book 
the the book about the Ada. I should have it soon, but it was talking about how like people who are descendants of the Ainu who were on Hokkaido before the Japanese people moved like took over Hokkaido have like kind of intermingled into like the Japanese so that they're not that racially distinct anymore, but they were very racially distinct. So it's like those ancestors, ancestors of slave, like slave Koreans and slave Chinese. Like it's, I don't know. It's just so indicative. Because you always think, you always think of Japan as this like racially homogenous place with no, you know, they don't have the, um, the same kind of like cultural and, you know, historical tensions that other nations do. But that ain't fucking true. It's also just weird how it came about. Like, it came about from Buddhism being you're not supposed to kill animals, and they somebody needed to be a butcher. Somebody had to make leather. And it's like, okay, that makes sense. But then over time it became, no, it's not because of the job you're dirty. It's because of who you are you're dirty. You look different. You must be smaller. You must be stupider, diminutive. Like, everything is just diminutive. And it all just started out because... You weren't supposed to harm animals, but somebody had to do this job. And didn't the uh, the translator say there's nothing genetically distinct about the Ita, right? So, like, it's not even it. Like, I, I guess that's the extra layer on it is that one can avoid being an Ita. That's why make the story is even like plausible is because you can avoid being an Ita by just not being from somewhere, right? You can be if you're geographically distant from what people think is in, you know a place with a lot of Ita, then you're probably can avoid like professing that. Um, it's go ahead. Yeah. So, well, uh, all right, we'll, we'll do Alex's question first. Um, so tension throughout this book, I found myself feeling tense and nervous along Ushimatsu. Ooh, he's tense. Do you need a back rub? Um, <laughs> from the scenes where he's trying to nut up and tell Inoko, about his Eta blood, or while walking alone in a foggy street. Tosin is very subtle, while I noticed that through the novel there are scenes where Ushimatsu finds himself either uh, being or imagining being followed or observed on the street. This creates an atmosphere of anxiety, tension, fear of being uh, found out. Did you guys notice other subtle ways that Tosin uses the setting to influence the emotions of the reader? Uh, it's funny because when because your name's right there and I was like I thought that that was like the next word in the sentence and I was like I can't just end just saying Alex. You can just say my name, <laughs> Alex, 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 Alex. So yeah, but did did you guys notice um, other subtle ways that Toasting uses the setting to influence the emotions of the reader? And I would say. Um, I don't. It's hard for me to pick out an example because he just does it all the time, right? It's like, continuous. It, yeah, it's very like that's one of the compelling parts about the novel is that it the the setting is like ever presently giving you a mood, and um, by doing that, it never really takes you out of the story. Uh, but like, I think um, the. Like it's just it's hard to point out because like when I the first thing that comes to mind are like the scenes with the principal in uh, Boonpei the his nephew. God, I hate Boonpei. Oh God, Boonpei sucks, asshole. But like, like I I don't know. I can't tell you the words he used. I can't tell you the things he described. But I felt like I was in that goddamn room with them. You know, like I felt like I was in that room. You know, t- scheming about how to get rid of Ushimatsu, and uh, that's. 
I mean, I read a lot of books. Like, it's not something I feel very often. No, or I mean, like, right after that, when when he gets word that his, you know, father is dying or dead, um, and he, he makes that journey back home to, like, go visit, I felt like I was on that journey with him. Like, it was explained so well that it was like I felt like I was literally traveling side by side next to this guy going to this place. Um, in terms of the tension aspect... Um, I think that was the main thing. I can't think of any other um, emotions that were used, you know, besides just like your generic, like, you know, happiness or, you know, sad and all that stuff. But, you know, tension was definitely the main motivator for all these things. Um, But for the setting in general, it it was just so natural. Like, I didn't feel like it was forced. There's not one thing I can pick out that was like, oh, yeah, like, you know, he really drove this home. It was just like I was there every step of the story as it went through very seamlessly. I think it was part of um, using all of the different senses and then really the rest of it being so serene. It's like, it's just the beauty of nature everywhere, which I think is just kind of common view with Buddhism and then also Japanese culture, just appreciating the nature around you, the mountains, the trees, everything there. And that serenity contrasting with his internal like struggle just makes the struggle more extreme in his mind. So I think it's not necessarily one thing that makes it more tense other than when he's like in the streets and he thinks he's being followed. I think it's almost more the contrast of how nice and peaceful everything else is. And then he's just in turmoil constantly. Yeah. And I think, like you said, it's, it's the, uh, it's the seamless, um, it's the seamless sense of serenity. And then with these, like these, Uh, strong moments of him being tense like you said whether he's being followed around or like the scenes where he's um basically incapacitated right with um with anxiety and needs uh, to go to sleep um you know where he's being where he's sick right like those scenes and that you know that makes it all the more palpable it doesn't you know it doesn't feel like um i often feel like in other books when when uh characters are going through those things it's uh um that's the exciting part of the book, you know, like everything leading up to that was like kind of a slog, but then you get sort of the mental crises and that's when you pay attention. But in this book, you're paying attention the whole way. And so when um, those crises happen, you actually feel like, uh, you know, it's like, I don't know. I felt like I was like leaning into it. The only plot point that I really saw that was almost specifically used for the tension is Inoko's books. Like throughout the entire book, mm-hmm. he has multiple books, mainly confessions, but it gets brought up by multiple different characters. And it's like, what's he going to do with these books? How's he going to hide them? In the end, he has to sell them and he cries about it because he loves the books so much. I feel like those were very, used very heavily as a plot point for tension because that was the one way that people were going to out him. That, the scene with um, Boonpei uh, asking him oh, whether God. he likes... Whether, you know, like what kind of what book from Anoku do you recommend? And his response to that being like, I don't read that book. Like, I don't read those books. I don't read that author. Like, like that that was probably the most tension scene. And it just keeps going, too. Yeah, yeah. Also, Oshio asking for to borrow his copy of Confessions after he pawned it is pretty depressing. 
Yeah. To go to the point about how good this fucking book is, I wanted to read Inoku. Uh, Inoku after Me too. This. Right. I, I know. Wanted I wanted to, to read, read Confession. Yes. Right. <laughs> I wanted to read that fucking book. Like that's, that's right. Uh, did you have something to say, Tom? Well, this is not related to plot points or anything, and I don't mm-hmm. know if you guys picked up on this, but there was one. There was one thing, uh, specifically in the beginning of the book, um, maybe the first hundred pages, that I just every time it happened, I was like, okay. Did you notice how often he would take or characters would take deep breaths of air? Did anybody pick <laughs> up on that? No. I didn't it was know. It, it was almost every time that the setting was being described or somebody was outside or like when he was on his journey back home or like anything. Constantly. It says like he takes deep breaths of air or deep droughts of air or deep whatever of air. They're always like... <laughs> He's always explaining how nice the air is. That's Dude, interesting. You know what? That's why it's so peaceful. <laughs> yeah, and it's why you connect so much with the seasons. Because, I mean, this book is, like, fucking insane about s- the seasons of fall and winter. Like, right. It has to constantly reestablish, like, the quality of the air, the crispness, uh, the rain, right. and the it, leaves, it, the snow. And, and that part I totally got. There was By, like, the fifth time that somebody took a deep breath of, like, this particular air that was being described, I was like, wow. Like, he really likes this one particular literary tool That's of, funny. like, this is how I'm going to describe the air. Dude, you know, you can't hate someone for loving to breathe. You yeah. know what I'm saying? You know what? I'm if, surprised you guys hadn't noticed But, it. you know, the thing is, is, the thing I said at the beginning of the recording is that I felt like I could taste the air. And uh, it's probably because he kept talking about fucking it's, choking that it's fucker like, down. I, it's, it's, <laughs> it's like subliminal messaging. Yeah, it's, it's like, and, right, I, and it wasn't like I don't mean to paint it like it was super like crude or not well written. It was just like he almost used the same phrase in just different variations multiple times, and I was like, wow, like he really likes to use this. You know? Yeah, that's the tough thing about translation too. Like, who knows? Like how he was describing it in Japanese. Like, well, yeah, that's you can even too. blame Ken. Maybe Ken Strong is obsessed with uh, choking down that air. <laughs> Just having at it. Throating the air. Yeah. He, yeah, he, yeah, he, lo- <laughs> he loves to deep throat the air. Um, so uh, I wanted to, because um, I found probably of the the supplementary characters, um, Kinoshin to be the, um, the most interesting uh, and I think he connects the best to the major restoration book that we talked about because he was a samurai and he's like kind of a fallen samurai. And like what um, I'm going to maybe steal your thunder there, Troy, because uh, this the quote no, read that piece I, of it. Do it. Yeah. So the quote that I picked for our little introduction here is um, so Kinoshin is um, getting drunk with Ishimatsu. He's at like, a, you know, I don't know, the Japanese equivalent of a bar, basically. And um He's confessing um, basically the sins of his past. And um, he's saying, um, uh, as much as that is, it seems like it was only a few months ago. Time goes so fast. No wonder I'm getting old while you young ones dash ahead. Even I had my time once, Sagawa. Tomorrow, tomorrow. I will always be dreaming of tomorrow. And now the bell tolled 50. My family were Iliyama samurai. When I was little, I served the lord of our fief as a page. Then I went to Edo City till the restoration, that is. What changes they've been? Change, change. Look at the castle ruins down the river. What do you think your generation think of those stone walls or what's left of them? I'm so overcome when I see all that ivy creeping up them. I nearly choke. 
Almost every castle you go to, it's the same. Nothing but a few ruins and mulberry trees planted where the samurai used to drill. That's how low samurai have sunk. The ones who kept their heads above water have only managed it by teaching school or clerking in government offices. That's all they could do. There's nothing so useless as a samurai, and I'm one of them, Sagawa. And I thought that perfectly encapsulated the samurai, like the lower samurai situation, right? The daimyo, they get taken care of. The upper middle samurai, you know, they get to be clerks or whatever. But these lower middle samurai who, like, lived off of their fucking, like, you know, their their koku, baby. You know, they were on their, their 100, 150 koku. They are, you know, like, extre- in an extremely precarious position. Um, their whole livelihoods were based off of a social standing that no longer exists. And then you look at, like, something like the Etta who were in this novel had already been introduced as new commoners. They were had already been introduced as uh, with equality before the state, right? Like they weren't a distinct political entity. Um, and so uh, Kinoshin is, uh, he is that sticking point for, you know, what does the Meiji Restoration mean historically? And like, how does that flesh out the novel in general? I feel like his character is kind of that representation and then the only other point where I see it come up is when they talk about the trains, which, I mean, he does travel on the train quite a bit, but the towns that died because they're no longer along the highway to Edo, and then all of the new cities that popped up because they're now along the new railway. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad we read Beasley because I wouldn't have appreciated Kenoshin nearly as much. That's exactly what I was going to yeah. say. I mean, that was the that was the one part of the book. I mean, there was a few. I mean, just general knowledge, having read the Meiji Restoration, um, it helped, like, lay a little bit of that foundation where there wasn't really a learning curve, and I think I could envision things more properly. But that scene right there was the one scene that I was like, I'm really glad I had read this book beforehand because the appreciation for the situation that he was in and what he was describing was a hundredfold of what I ever would have gotten had I not read Beasley. Goddamn right. Yeah, it was a good primer for sure. I'm glad we're doing a nonfiction book at the beginning of our units. I think it helps. Me too. I really like it. And I feel like it's going to help like going forward, you know, because we're going to have... Um, we at least have like a good rudimentary knowledge of the, you know, the class situation of Japan. Uh, you know, even, I mean, I don't think Beasley talked. Did Beasley talk about the new? Com- no, he didn't talk about the Eta at all. So we have like a further exposure of this idea of a new commoner, right? Of Eta being introduced as that group, and and I would not be surprised if other novels introduced the Eta as you know some element of their stories. So, um. I I'm very thankful we read Beasley because it gives us a really like strong orientation and you know I mean not that Beasley totally introduced this but like he you know he did touch on the Japanese enlightenment he is you know Tosin and you know his protagonist Ushimatsu and Jinosuke they are the modern Japanese right and they represent that well you know whereas the principal or Bunpei right they represent old Japanese society, right? They represent something that's not forward-looking. But the interesting about interesting thing about all of them is that the progressives of Japanese society are still Japanese. <laughs> they don't view themselves as, like, some sort of, um, you know, world... They view themselves as, like, maybe spreading Japanese culture in an imperialist fashion, right? Although that doesn't come up in this novel. 
but they aren't separate. Like they aren't, they aren't demanding the, the uh, recognition of all of mankind. They are demanding the, the, you know, uh, the legacy of the Japanese people. Um, and there is not really any tension between the principal and Ushimatsu on that point. I don't think. Yeah. No. Cool. Um, so you motherfuckers who I'm looking at right now, Tom and Troy, you guys didn't put any questions on. So do you have any questions for the pod? I liked the, uh, question about, (laughs) or the topical question about duty, like, and what duty means to the family. He fucking steals my fucking. <laughs> hey man, the last you had one. <laughs> you had multiple questions, so I'm just gonna take one of them. Okay, yeah. So let's talk. Let's talk about the theme. So yeah. So th- I I want to introduce this because it's a Sesame Street introduction. Well, oh, do you I'll, have a, I'll ask you my like actual okay. question. So okay, cool. And, and this is more of. Uh, it's not super specific, but what do you guys think your perception after having read? You know, the Meiji Restoration and having read Beasley and then having read a book that's just afterwards that is incorporating ideas of the Restoration. You know, do you feel like your I, your um, understanding of this time period in Japan is more accurate now? I mean, do you think this gave you almost more of like a ground level feel? Because that's how it felt to me. Like when I read the Meiji Restoration, it was obviously meant to be just more educational and more um college level nonfiction literature um but having read this and how well written it was i almost felt like i got a better idea of like you know how japanese life and civilization in this changing period was and i was curious what you guys' thoughts on that were i think that like i i agree with what you're saying tom but i think it goes beyond that because um Personally, I think this is a book that anybody from like any culture could pick up and relate to. Like, you don't necessarily need to know the details of like Japanese society because you pick basically get it through the introduction. But like the struggle that um, Ushimatsu experiences is like something that I think is universal. Like, it's not necessarily tied to like caste or whatever, but the experience of uh, I think being an outcast, being an outsider, and like carrying that baggage around is like totally uh, a universal experience um but uh, to your point tom i think that the it's kind of one of those um it'd be impoverished without the other kind of situations whereas like reading beasley on its own was beneficial and reading this book on its own is also beneficial and would give you insight but together um you know it's like uh you know, it's like when Goku and Vegeta fuse, <laughs> right? You know, you get go get a baby. Like it's <laughs> fucking watch out. Um, you're gonna kick, you know, Kid Boo's ass or whatever. But uh, that's how I feel about it because I feel so much more enriched and enhanced by um, by reading them both. And I'm, I hope the other books don't suck. I know that Mishima's good, so we at least have that. But um, but uh, I hope that the other books, you know, rise to rise to the occasion. But I think that. Um, it, this unit is starting off really well because I feel like that by the time that we're at the end of it, we're going to have um, a very dynamic understanding of, of the historical trajectory of Japan. I'm going to be wearing a kimono by the end of this, baby. Oh, Dude, hell yeah. You know, can we, we can, f- uh, let's start like our own little um, uh, military corps in the legacy of Mishima, and then we'll try to restore the emperor in like 2022. 
you know. We can like reinvent the samurai and we can just show up to all our meetings in like kimono drinking sake <laughs> and like, you know, doing samurai things. <laughs> and that's how we will like initiate the revolution. Right. And we're and it'll give us an excuse to um to battle the the people who are talking about cultural appropriation, you know, because really the samurai spirit is for all of us. That's right. It's nationalism in its finest. Goddamn right. Tom, to your question, I think that, uh, well, I agree with Sam that it really the two books enrich each other, whereas the nonfiction was focused more on like the ruling class and just understanding like the overall movement of society, whereas this was a lot slower just because it's from one person's perspective or what their life is like. And I think the scene that made that stand out the most, how things didn't change is when Kyoshin's family has to measure out the rice for their rent and when they're they're sharecroppers, they're tenant farmers and they are impoverished. Like nothing has changed because of the restoration. There is a samurai lord who comes in, he's angry looking, he sits down, he takes literally all of their produce and then they have to give him sake and all of their best food too. And then he leaves. Dude, that would make me so mad. <laughs> Yeah, no, I I think that's a that's a really good point, Troy. That they're really you know as much as the major restoration changes things, it also doesn't change things at all. And um, you know the same people who were in positions of authority before are in positions of authority now. They just have like a different mechanism by which to exact their authority. Yeah. No, I know, and that that's just one of the things I kind of got out of it was I, I guess I was just surprised as to how well they complemented each other like how well they had developed um, one story to the other and just the understanding in between them um, and what was going on in society and then the contrast. And it was just like, I I almost felt like it was like a perfect mix and I hope the rest of the unit goes like this because it was the high level idea of what's going on in the country and then the ground level idea of what it's actually like through this transition. And I just felt like that was, it really helped enrich the story for me. And so I was just curious how it felt for you guys. That's the best sort of thing is when you get, uh, if you can find nonfiction that's big, big history and little history mixed together, that's like, mm, that's the best kind of stuff. Mm, So good. So I want to do my Sesame Street bit now. The letter of the week is D for duty. What does duty mean to you? How does the intense duty of Ushimatsu differ to, um, how does the intense duty of Ushimatsu to his father differ from yours? Is it better to be true to your own commitments or honorable to your family? And I think that this is um, the biggest gap, I would say, between my um, my personal like cultural upbringing and um, Ushimatsu's or Tosin's or just generally Japanese people in the 20th century is that... Um, that one's uh, commitment to the principles of of your ancestry, of your family, um, that is, uh, I imagine for the 20th century Japanese reader, that would resonate like in a very powerful way where I can understand it, but I don't really resonate with it because I don't have that same attachment to my, um, my parents', their words, their commandments, their... Um, injunctions that Tosin does or in uh, or Ushimatsu does so what is that you know what does it mean to you to be responsible for something to be dutiful towards something I feel very almost like the opposite of Ushimatsu and that I am 
kind of the opposite of my parents in terms of views on politics, religion, society, most everything. But I do wish that our modern society had more of a sense of duty. One, just like taking care of your own. Like Ushimatsu takes apart some of his paycheck every month and sends it to his father, even though he's poor and sometimes like doesn't have money to eat. Um, but in terms of like staying true to their ideals, I do think that's important, but it has to be like weighted against your own self-interest. Like kind of both things have to be there and it's a balancing act and it depends on your dynamic and where you are in your culture. Obviously we're on the extreme individualist aspect. So it's kind of like just throw it to the wind and do what you want. But I feel like we would do better to have more of a sense of duty. Like you have to take care of your own or you should, and you should respect it even if you disagree with what it is, even if it's a very fundamental disbelief or a disagreement on belief. Yeah. I mean, I would pretty much second what Troy's saying. I think, um, I mean, it's hard because it's two completely contrasting societies. You know, when you're talking about 1920s Japan and it's extreme duty to your your family to your community to your you know place in civilization and then what we're living in right now is extreme individualism it's you know complete skepticism about everything whether you actually know right or wrong it's you know if i don't agree with your opinion i'm not going to like even attempt to like bridge that gap and understand where you're coming from um especially between generations i mean i know we talk about it mostly jokingly not really jokingly about the generation gaps between the boomers and the in the millennials and the gen xers and um you know who does what right and who does what wrong and and it's almost like we're detracted from um from that just inherent idea that like i may not agree with this or understand what's going on, but I have this sense of duty to like, you know, make the people around me better. And we're so far away from that. And this society is so close to that, that it's hard to like see where the middle is. But to Troy's point, I think the middle is probably, or somewhere in the middle, somewhere in between is probably the best place to be. Cause sometimes making the decisions that aren't necessarily the best thing for you in that moment, but are the best for the people around you that will progress you further, that will see things to greater fruition, are actually better. But we don't always look at it that way. And in their society, they were so far that way that they couldn't even see the progression. You know? And, um, and yeah, I mean, I just, I feel like, to me, uh, duty would be when when something needs to get done and there's no alternative options, whether you agree with it or not, and you have some type of, you know, familial, uh, lineage linkage to this group of people, like you should step up to the plate and help them out. And, And whether you like it or not, whether you, you know, agree with it or not, that helps the community around you, but you can push that too far as well. And that's what I think you see in the early 20th century Japan. Well, I would add, though, that doesn't that make Tosin the, like, new Japanese man, right? The the modern individualist, you know? Because he he sacrificed himself and his family for his craft, um, quite literally. And so we have, um, I think, 
that's you know what makes this novel um probably especially uh exceptionally provocative to a japanese audience is that in the end the the ushimatsu chooses to be true to himself rather than his father he breaks his father's commandment and um i think that it you know in the sense of being like dutiful towards your parents right like it's you know, it's it's not it's like, you know, Ushimatsu did send money back to his father. You know, he was respectful towards his father's um, his his memory, but he couldn't do everything for him. Um, and he couldn't he couldn't keep his commandment. The one commandment he said it as he was dying, like, you know, it was probably the most important thing in the world to to Ushimatsu's father to not spill the beans. And um, and Ushimatsu went against that. So um but as far as like duty is concerned towards you know familial things, I, I agree with you, Tom. That there's a there's a sense in which you know one needs to like you um, sacrifice you know your individual desires for others, right? Um, whether they be friends or family. But I am, I guess you know whatever, partially biased towards the idea that um, you know nothing's a given, right? Like um, that you know it's not that it's not that the contingency of one's a bit, you know, one's willingness to help someone is, uh, you know, it doesn't have to be very wide. It can be narrow. Right. But like, you know, I mean, you're my brother, right. But if you had a heroin addiction and you were hitting me up for money all the time, right. And you wanted to live in my house for free because you'd be homeless otherwise. I mean, the answer is probably going to be no, you know, like it's not, I, you know, I mean, my family duty would tell me that you need to like live with me while you're, you know, taking money out of my wallet. But, you know, it's not like it's not going to help you. And and, uh, you know, and I hope you get better if you need help. Like I want to help you. But like if you don't want to get help and you need to do that, then whatever that is like that, you know, that would be that. Right. Well, yeah. No, of course. And I vice mean, versa. I know? would give you oh. some Narcan, Tom. <laughs> well, see, yeah. I appreciate that, <laughs> you know. And, and and so I I fully understand that when you're talking in like more extreme senses of, you know, what's right for the individual. But I feel like sometimes what's right for the community can be a little bit different, you know. Sure, I mean, yeah. I feel like a lot of times people will push, you know, someone else to the wayside and out of their lives because there's a disagreement in politics. So there's a disagreement in, you know, society or economics or whatever. And it's because it doesn't align with, you know, what we think is best for our individual lives when in reality there mm. is a bigger picture. Um and so to your point, yes, I mean, if somebody is, you know, uh, addicted to something and needs help and and is going to, you know, uh, be a parasite on your life to continue their habits and not get any better, that's one thing. But if it's somebody that's, you know, clean for three years and is looking for a way to bounce back and needs to live somewhere for six months while they hold a job and accumulate enough money to, like, pay for rent and they're not asking you for money, they're still, like, susceptible. It's still not in your best interest. It's still not going to help your situation. Mm -hmm. But you might be a lot more willing to do it. Yeah, yeah. Um, where when you go too individualized, you wouldn't be willing to do it. And now this person is not going to have that small stepping stone to like bring them back into the fold. Um, on the other side, when you look at a lot of, you know, what we've read about and the intense, um, you know, duty filled society that is in Japan, it's the other extreme where you're doing things 
to the direct detriment of yourself because that's what you're supposed to do. And and there's just an in-between there that I think is the right place to be. And neither where we are today or where Japan was in 1880 is the right place to be. You know, it's funny because, uh, um, y- you know, you're always the good centrist. Um, you know, I was trying to find the middle ground. There's an interesting story. I was watching a... Um, a like some sort of study on um, black boxes and airplanes. And there was a story of a, of an actual plane crash into a mountain, right? That killed everybody that happened specifically because the co-pilot was so deferential to the pilot, right? The pilot was, uh, you know, had charted his course wrong, but the co-pilot was so, um, sort of submissive to that authority of the pilot that, he he knew he knew they were heading towards the mountain. He knew everybody was going to die, but he couldn't bring himself to actually correct the pilot and say, you know, like any American would have fucking just grabbed the, you know, they would just grab the controls. They'd be like, you don't know what the fuck you're doing. We're about to go into a mountain. I don't want to die, and I don't really give a shit about you. But this was, I believe, a Chinese plane, and it just went into the mountain. <laughs> he died. So, you know, like, I think that, that, you know, um, Oriental, if you will, um, community outlook is, uh, um, it, it is different. It is different. And, um, and it, it really comes through in the novel. I don't know. Alex, you haven't said anything. I don't know, man. Enlighten us. I, Alex. I, I, come on. Give us, give us the deets. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, You're I, French I do Canadian. think that love you have, like, and family, family ties. and which is just relationships in general are born of compromise. Um, I think that is a lot of what uh, a, a basis for a relationship is, 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 is compromise and compromising or sacrificing, you know, aspects of your will or whatever, you know, in, in terms of like a, a truly like profound relationship, like a marriage or with, you know, what you do with raising your children is, is important. And I, I think that, I, and I, I don't know, I'm apprehensive about this, but like, I don't, know necessarily that boomers feel the same way and maybe it's been the same for a long time towards their children's generation like not that all boomers don't sacrifice for their children that's not the point i'm trying to make but you know it seems to be like we've kind of cheapened it all i don't know if you guys agree was that how have we cheapened it um i i don't know it seems almost like transactional and like as if like Raising children is something that is like done at the age of 18 or something like that. Like it's like a, uh, you know, you see like those ads and it's, it's to me, it's like creepy, you know, like, uh, the, the jokes about like your kids move out when they're turn 18 so you can buy a new car or whatever. It's like, why are you having kids, man? If, if that's Mm -hmm. the way you feel about it, like it's, it seems very weird to me and it doesn't result in particularly well-rounded adults you know um yeah no i mean there was a uh, a story i read where a a father came to his son and gave him a bill for his childhood after his, after his son you know made a bunch of money doing some business thing and so the son paid him off and never talked to him again but like that's horrifying that's horrifying you're supposed to take care of your parents when right. they're older too it's that's like part, yeah, the exactly. other hand of this is what i'm getting at is we throw our our boomers into little jail cells where they die of coronavirus it's uh you know it's it's not this isn't just a one-sided thing uh by any means like it's it's kind of insane but 
if that's our society, that's our society. And maybe that's the better way to do it. You know what I mean? I don't know. I don't think it so. It seems yeah. not better to me. I don't, I don't either, but you had talked about this, love and people don't want to talk about duty anymore today. It just like, isn't, I don't know. It's not fashionable to talk about. Nobody wants to have a sense of duty towards others, but everybody talks about love. They won't shut up about it. It's everywhere. It's an advertisement. It's just on everything all the time. And if you're talking about like parents as they're getting older and you do take care of them, but it's, yeah, I don't love that this person's going to be shitting his adult diaper and is going to be yelling at me because he doesn't remember who I am anymore. But like, I don't love that idea that I'm going to do it, but of course I'm going to do it. Like I have a duty to take care of this person. They took care of me when I was younger. It's also like you would let somebody who's your kin just die in a retirement home like i don't know i just feel the need almost to take care of them like it's the right thing you should do it even if it's not like oh wow i love this like there's just such a confusion in our modern world about like what it is and a lot of it is just dumbing down the language where we don't really differentiate anymore yeah and even like beyond that into into interpersonal relationships i know it's like a meme a little while ago but it's something that liberals and well people really think like that person who said, if someone reaches out to you and you can't deal with them, you send that, that message that says, hi, I'm actually at capacity right now. Yeah. Like, uh, yeah, do I you remember guys remember that? that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, the fact that you would, I don't, it's just, it's psychotic. It's like, so, it's like, no, maybe sociopath or whatever. Like, no duty to your friends. No, no willingness to, to sacrifice, to put yourself out there a little bit. Yeah, do and something it's like, that sucks you know, you don't you know what your capacity, like, you know, I mean, I don't know. I would never use those terms, but I would say that, like, there are sometimes I can't help people, you know. There's, you know, there are moments when that's not um, a realistic possibility. But, like, um, for the most part, it, I'm compelled to try, right? Like, you know what I mean? Like, even if you're not in the best headspace for something, you still want to give it a go because it's, you know, there's people out there that need you and like, you may not be feeling great, but they might be feeling worse or, you know, maybe through those conversations you can, um, you know, it, it could benefit you as well as a way to take away the focus on, on whatever it is you're struggling with. But yeah, I, I find, I find the prescriptive nature about it to be the most pernicious, right? That there's like some fucking, you know, you have a health bar and <laughs> you're, you know, you finally hit zero HP and like now that's done as if that's how fucking, you know, that's how your, your emotional capacity A template works. can handle all human, all of your, all relationships for all people. Right. Like you're a fucking D&D character, you know, and you got, you know, yeah. you got your, uh, your belt of, of the sun with plus three health and, and your, um, you know, your trans chest plate, um, you know, with a pair of tits on it, and and, and you're fine. You know what I mean? Like you, <laughs> you made it. Um, but you only have you know twenty emotional capacity, and you know what? You rolled a you rolled a a critical failure the last time around. So you know, sorry, friend. I know you want to kill yourself, but I'm out of capacity. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's. Good analogy. It's fucking dark. That's what I'm saying. But I, I, I will say, though, that, like, a lot of these, um, I'm interested, uh, we, a lot of our impressions about these things come from online sources, um, and I think that is infecting the general culture, or at least that's been my impression lately. Um, but I think that there's a lot of groups of people like us, right, out there who 
um, reject this way of of being, right? And um, I don't know. I don't really know what kind of staying power that that has, because that kind that level of atomization, that level of of um, personal self regard, of narcissism. I just it just is. I don't know. It's anti human to me. It doesn't feel very sustainable. Yeah, but you can't sell people products on duty. It has to be something where, oh, you get something directly out of it. But it's like the right. it's the legacy of the 60s, right? I mean, that this is the legacy of the 60s counterculture movement. Mm-hmm. It seems to be lingering. It's been 50, 50 years of this. I'm sure, not that anti-humanists or whatever, they've always existed, but... Yeah, but I mean... How much fucking longer, man? I'm fucking counting down the days until we get a a fucking, like... I don't know, the Zoomers might be it. We'll see. But until we get a truly reactionary youth, right? And how are we all going to fucking deal with that? When, you know, everybody's talking about, like, oh, the young, the young, the young, right? Like, the young were part of the fascist movement. Like, the young are not inherently progressive as an an entity. I, I am... I not looking forward to, but I'm very, you know, interested to see how it plays out when we have a, a youth movement that demands order, that demands, you know, demands regimentation, that demands duty, you know, that um, we see some of that with the Zoomers um, with, uh, you know, I don't know, their following of Nick Fuentes or um, uh, pathologies about fucking, you know, Orthodox Roman Catholicism um, and, we'll see how that plays out but we haven't really you know everybody's looking at the youth as like you know oh it's the next generation of big ideas that are going to bring things forward but eventually um with all this uh you know whatever uh, crazy progressive crap when those people have children you know when the next generation comes along it it's not unlikely that there's going to be a, a big push for like I have no meaning. Everything feels atomized. Everything feels arbitrary. How can I find sort of the the center of the you know of of my being, a way of um, finding myself? And that will probably come from either God or the state. Yeah, you know. I feel like they're. I don't know if Zoomers are all the way there, but I do see it in them. Like, I think it's probably people that are kids right now when they become teens and youth and like young twenties. I honestly think it's just like a half generation away yeah i mean we're watching the state become weaker and weaker every assuming more authority every single day yeah but in terms of its importance in the daily life it's a joke uh and it has been i mean that obama was a joke you know it's it seems as if uh wherever you drive your meaning from in life is media consumption at this point you know we don't really have a national identity anymore it's kind of being superseded by the market um, in mass immigration. <laughs> no, I mean, go off King. Go no, off. I'm not King. saying that as a, as a, I, I'm not qualifying that. Like, I just think it's, it's the reality, you know? Uh, yeah. I, it's, it's no, just the changing have, face to... of this, of this country. And I'm not, I'm not, necess- I'm not anti-immigration necessarily. Like I'm pretty critical of like H1 visas and stuff, but I'm not mm-hmm. against the concept, you know, mm-hmm. it's more, just uh, the changing face of this country and like if we're gonna not be a homogeneous country that's the future and that's that's fine that's good probably or i don't know if it's good or bad it's just it, it is you know but right. we need to have a new something there needs to be something i think i mean i feel like kind of we're definitely right? there's definitely going to be some type of major change um 
I would guess within the next like 20 or 30 years. Um, I'm most mostly curious about what that change is going to be. I mean, I just think of it's just it's not very often it's never in history have we had this like technological economical boom in the last 40 years with virtually no major conflict no life-changing conflict there's been conflicts i mean you had the iraqi war you had different things going on throughout the world but nothing that caused you know um a draft in the military nothing that caused an economic collapse i mean the closest thing we had was 08 and that wasn't like it was bad at the time but we rebounded in what two years and then we were just back to normal you know it's not like people weren't going malnourished all over the place it wasn't you know the whole country didn't collapse and it's been this like lull in society for a while where things have been externally good and internally we just do whatever we want and and you have things like instagram you have social media you have all kinds of things that are outlets for people and it replaces that community identity with an individual identity and i i don't feel like that's sustainable i mean the more and more people i talk to they feel like lost in what's going on nowadays and they're gonna want I feel like people want something to ground them, something to work towards, either a national identity or, you know, a familial identity or um, something that's more invested than Instagram every single day and a nine to five job that you don't care about while you aspire to be some like TikTok artist or whatever. And (laughs) I, I just I think there's. Or right. us, like a podcaster. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I just feel like there is a groundswell happening, and the government is, it, it takes more and more control of things, but in a very um, inefficient way. You know, people are super skeptical of the government nowadays. People aren't fearful of it. You know, no one's scared of Donald Trump. They, they might not like the guy. They might hate him. They might think whatever. But I, people aren't worried about, you know, someone busting down your door in the name of Donald Trump and taking you to jail. Man, I kind of disagree. I think people really are. Yeah, I mean, really? I, don't, I don't. I think a lot of it is paranoia, right? And like some of it's real, but I don't think they they present Donald Trump like it's not. People are busting your door, no matter who the goddamn president is. You know, if you're, um, you know, if you're, you know, I don't know, if you're torching police cars, like that's the consequence. I mean, I, I don't think it's fair. I don't think it's good, but that's what happens, you know. Right. You want to you want to fucking like, you know, burn down a cop car um when you're obviously not, you know, celebrating your team's victory at a fucking college sporting event. But if you're going to if you're going to do it for political reasons, then you're probably going to get your door slammed in. I mean, that's how the world we live in. It's the world we've been living Dude, in. Dude, they killed Duncan Lemp in his bed, you know? Just like okay, Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they're icing people all over the place. You don't even have to do anything political. All he did was own a couple, couple guns. You know, right? Um, so you know, but I, I, I do. Think- well, I mean, anyways. So regardless of the government busting your door down or anything, um, I just think there's going to be a change in society where we are going to look more towards a community aspect, where we are hopefully going to find some type of you know, means to communicate and agree with each other and push our country and the world forward. Not, and I can't imagine that being further in a direction of individualism. I, I have to think that we're going, going to probably come up against some things that are going to cause issues 
and there's either going to be a war or an economic crisis or something that requires people to be together and get through it. Um, but I think that's something that's missing and that people are longing for and that a generation is going to come up and actually pursue that actively. Yeah, socialist man. movement. I hope so. I hope so too, dude. Because if it's not the socialists, it's going to be you know the neo. Yeah, it's either Nick. It's either Nick Fuentes or Sam Johnson. Honestly, the platypus oh, versus fucking, America too, first showdown. You're too kind, my <laughs> dude. I can't believe I'm being spoken in the same uh, sentence as Nick Fuentes. <laughs> God damn. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Battle Royale. Uh, what were you going to say, Troy? I don't remember. Oh, okay. Well, politics, baby. Yeah, uh, it it's a scary world we uh, we're in right now. I don't know. Did you guys see the uh, the thing where Ch- I saw a post from the uh, s- uh, s- whatever South Chinese Star or whatever the fuck newspaper that is Morning Star, and they said that there's like a uh, quote. It said quote deadlier than COVID. You know. Um, uh, unknown pneumonia happening in Kazakhstan, and I'm like. You know, can we just can we just have something that isn't catastrophic happen? One of two things happen. Either we come out of whatever the hell is going on right now and somewhat figure our shit out and move in the right direction, or we don't make it till December. The world falls apart, everybody dies, that's the end of yeah, it. Yeah, you're waiting for the cataclysm, cataclysm, Tom. Like we still haven't had the second lockdown yet. No. And it's coming. Yeah. You guys Buy a gun now, especially I mean, especially if fucking if Biden wins. I mean, to listeners, to everyone. I mean, seriously, <laughs> get your guns. No, I'm not. I'm not. Oh even, yeah, no, that was the. You kidding. know what? Those motherfuckers that you know. Did you see the thing that came out of the Joint Task Committee for um for uh, the Bernie Biden summit or whatever? The only the quote progressive things that came out of it were. Um, an end to qualified immunity for police. It wasn't actually an end to it. It was like a curtailment of it. And then um, gun control. Yeah, and it extremely dollars $200 per magazine. Like, Oh, my God. Can you These believe that? People, and it's just like, Bernie, like, fucking retire. Like, if you're not going to do anything useful, if you're not even going to get Medicare for all on, on Biden's platform, which he's not even going to deliver on, but if you're just, like, not going to get anything useful on the fucking table, why go to the summit? Why be so servile? It's completely unnecessary. He, I mean, honestly, this is a decent note to end on. I think that he is one of the people, public figures, who should commit seppuku uh, and to redeem, him, redeem <laughs> his honor. I got to say, man, I really want to see him kill himself. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! Oh man! I'd pay money. Well, I wouldn't. Uh, maybe that. I don't know. That's a bad taste, maybe. But I, I would. Um, if Bernie Sanders committed seppuku on live television, on pay per view, <laughs> on pay per view, yeah, it'd be like a Floyd Mayweather fight. You know, I'd pay for it. Fuck yeah, dude. Uh, Let can we can we do a you know maybe when things get really bad and we all get very depressed you know we feel like that uh, come and see movie we're not already know. um oh yeah we, we gotta talk about that sometime. i know yeah 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 um but we should all commit seppuku on twitch and see how it goes twitch you know yeah i feel like i would much rather not that i have a problem with seppuku <laughs> But I want to qualify this. Well, but I just much rather envision myself like you know, um, 
in an apartment with my closest friends shooting up the streets until I get shot at. <laughs> like, I just, I, I would rather hold out <laughs> until the very end, like a Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid type situation. Oh, fuck yeah, dude. And uh, I'd, I, I would personally rather go out that way. Not that I don't want to pay-per-view myself, you know, doing so some seppuku, suicide. But um, I just envision it more of, you know... All right. Well, I mean, I think yeah, we've been going hours. for long enough. We got like a lot of material, so um, so thank you everybody for listening. We're going to be reading um, which um, stories so yeah, from the Rashomon the, um, short story. We're re- going to read Rashomon the story itself, and then we're also going to read Yam Gruel. All right, Rashomon and Yam Gruel for next week. Thank you everybody for listening. Bye. Have a good night. Good night, everyone. Good night. <laughs>